Okay, welcome back to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark Architect. Appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen in to this podcast series where we talk through the experience of collaborating with architects and realizing architectural projects. We talk through the thinking behind the design of spaces and places. And today we have a milestone episode. We have our first interview, our first guest. Today is Matthew Saunderson, Quantity Surveyor from QS Plus. Matthew started QS Plus some 20 years ago, and I've worked with him on projects for about 10 years. He's a member of the Australian Institute of Quantity Surveyors. He lectures at various universities. He features at numerous architectural webinars, seminars, and design talks. He's going to be a panelist at the Design Show Australia at the Exhibition Centre in Darling Harbour, Sydney, October 20th to 22, uh, in 2022. Um, He, in my opinion, is really an expert in the cost of construction for single dwellings in New South Wales. And I work with him at the concept design stage. We have a concept design that's presented to the client. The client has said, okay, Let's take this to the next level. Let's take stock of the cost. So let's pause the designing. And now let's see where we are in regards to cost. We're going to do a deep dive into what we call a budget estimate, the budget estimate package, the budget estimate document, and where the cost of construction is sitting in New South Wales, Australia in July 20. 22. I hope you enjoy the episode. You are listening to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, architect, talking today to Matthew Saunderson from QS Plus. The first question I ask is the background story, the origin of Matthew Saunderson as a quantity surveyor starting up QS Plus. Well, originally I wanted to be an architect, so which might might be surprising, um, but I never got the marks for architecture to get into university, so I ended up being a quantity surveyor. So there you go. That's a bit of a secret. No one knows. Um, I've always been interested in building, so I always knew my career was going to be in building. I just didn't know exactly what part it would be in. Um, I guess after I didn't get the marks to get into architecture, I thought what I'm going to do. So I ended up originally doing the building course at TAFE first up, first up in the sort of 93, 94. Um, when I did that course, got qualified as basically a builder. I could have been a builder. Um, Mid nineties was pretty dire in the economy as far as building went. It's not like anything like it is now. So work was fairly hard to come by. So I just started out um, to get a start labouring on building sites. So I did a bit on commercial projects. Um, there was a school that I worked on and it gave me a really good insight into how things are put together. And I think that's the most important part of being a good QS is knowing how things go together So that um, and how long it takes to put things together. So that experience out on site was very valuable. Um, I I worked in a project home company for a while. 
I worked in a kit home company for a while. Um, and then I landed a job as an estimator in a high-end residential building company that built architecturally designed houses around the eastern suburbs of Sydney, North Shore of Sydney. So, and I worked there for about six or seven years. And in that time, I was their estimator. So putting together all their quotes, I guess you would say. While I was there, I did a university degree in construction management. Um, that company folded in about 1999. But I had all this contact with architects that I'd got to know and over the time that I, that I was there. So when that company shut up shop, I just contacted all the architects to say, look, I'm still around um, and I'm happy to continue on doing cost planning work. Because at that point, we were starting to offer that service at the building company where we would do cost planning work for architects early on in the design. And that was, um, yeah, about 2000, I think, QS Plus started. So I've been working for myself ever since then. So the last 22 years. Wow. And um, it's an interesting evolution. At no point studying building, did you say, let's look at a backdoor way of getting into architecture? You sort of let that go? No, probably, probably architecture, yeah, I let go completely. And after I'd done the building course at TAFE, I thought I'm going to be a builder. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then after working at the building company for so many years, I thought there's no way I want to be a builder. <laughs> working so, on the tools, you mean, or estimating? No, working as, as in owning a building company and building houses. Right. Um, after that experience, I just thought, no, it's, it's a tough job. Yep. So I'd much rather be involved in, in the estimating side. And numbers is sort of my thing. Um, so I went down that avenue. Right. It's a, it's a really interesting evolution. Um, one of the things that you've probably heard multiple times in regards to quantity surveyors, certainly when people say to me, why would I go to a quantity surveyor when I could just go to a builder? And we might talk about that in, in, to get an estimate, like let's go to a builder mm. to get an estimate rather than a quantity surveyor. One of the criticisms um, is that uh, the quantity surveyors get the measurements right, but the buildability wrong. Mm. And the builder gets the buildability right, but the measurement's wrong. And that's why the two in the same room are really important. And in a way, you having experienced that in real time on the tools yeah. and you having worked directly with a builder means that you're in a really great position to challenge anyone that would put that to you. Yeah, that's right. And I think that probably what makes a, a good quantity surveyor is having that experience. So, yeah, and, you know, working at the building company, I had my ass kicked several times when <laughs> the foreman would ring me up and, and say, look, you've only allowed four hours to hang this door and it's a pivot door and it's going to take two days. What were you thinking? <laughs> so, yeah, it's trial by error and, and, and you, you get beaded and battered around a bit. So there's a lot of um, hard lessons learned, but now I've learned those lessons and I'm all the better for it. And that reaching out to architects, so it was architects that had come to that company to get a tender. Is that the former connection? That's right. Yeah. Yep, originally. And, I mean, we saw a need in the market because we were pricing projects, and this is back, you know, in the late 90s, um, and they would always come back more than what the budget was. Yep. And we would spend days doing cost savings trying to get the job. 
Um, and we could spend, you know, we, we'd probably spend a week or two on a tender and then it would come back more than what the client's budget was. And then we could spend another week or two doing revisions. And that's the, that's the toughest thing for a builder doing revisions. Um, and then we still might not get the job or the job still might not go ahead because we can't get it to where the client or what the client's budget was. So we saw a need that um, with our experience in, in the residential, you know, architecturally designed houses that um, we we've probably can give some help earlier on in the process rather than waiting to get to tender stage before all the money's been spent on firstly getting a DA and then all the documentation only to find that they can't afford to build it. So that's where it sort of started. So, so that's, um, we, we call this, uh, I call it a zag based on advice from business coach I've, I've worked with. There's a book by a person called Marty Heidegger. Uh, I think it's Martin Heidegger who says, you know, in regards to finding your niche, finding your zag, if everyone zigs, then zag. Um, I'm interested, this was a while back now, did most of the clients, architects at that stage, did they not have any cost advice prior to going to tender? Was that the first look at the cost back then? Yeah, virtually none. Like wow. getting a QS involved in residential houses was virtually non-existent back in that time, in that late 90s time. Wow. Um, and really, even most of the early 2000s, it, it, it wasn't a par for the course thing that an architect would engage a QS. Um, I think an architect would rely on things they'd built previously to, to gauge what um, the latest one might be. It's really only coming in the last probably five years where we're more part of, a, of the project team in, in Resi, that is. Um, commercial, we're probably always, a QS has always been involved, but in houses, um, it's probably the last five years and certainly in the last year or two where it's just got horrendously expensive, um, most architects now will engage a QS before they go out to tender. It's interesting you say five years. I've been doing residential for a long time, um, getting in the, the yeah 15 or so years and I can't remember a time when I didn't say to a client at, you know, early as possible, Let's put some numbers against this. I didn't know that it was so, yeah, it's only been the last five years where it's been common practice. Yeah, and really there's not a lot of QS practices, I guess, that just specialise in resi work as well. Like traditionally you've got the large QS firms that do everything from mines and airports and they'd give a go to, to houses as well, which that's probably not really where their expertise was. So th there's a lot more smaller QS firms now that, that I guess can specialise in the smaller projects. I, um, I couldn't think of an alternative. Like I have this comment sometimes with some students that I teach for architectural registration and um, not necessarily any clients, but I guess anyone out there thinking I've got a budget, I've got a tight budget and the budget is so tight that I actually can't afford to get quantity surveying advice. And I feel like that's a strange position to be in because that would be even more the reason to get that advice as early as possible because um, in the evolution of well, it's a project- cheap insurance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like my fees are cheap insurance for your project, really. Absolutely, absolutely. And better to know at that early stage when you're excited about the idea, the prospect of what could be as presented by the architect to say, okay, we've got to shift We've got mm. to look at alternatives. 
then certainly at the stage where you're excited because council have approved it, and certainly at that stage after council have approved it where you've documented to go to a builder, like that's just so far advanced um, yeah. where it's... Yeah. Okay. And Yeah, well, I'm not sure to how an architect ended up getting responsibility entirely for the budget. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I often give a lecture at Sydney University to the, I think it's the third year architectural students. And I, the first question I ask is how much costing um, courses have you done to date? And it's always zero. But they, they walk out of university into a job um, where they're responsible for the cost of this house that they're designing. So I'm not sure how architects got lumped mm. with that responsibility. Um, and even at the moment with the rate that the costs have been going up, it's hard enough for someone like me to stay on top of it, mm. let alone an architect that's trying to organise all these other consultants. Um, and but, but ultimately it all comes back to the dollar. So mm. I think architects are unfairly... Um, lumped with with that responsibility and i guess using someone like me relieves you of that responsibility to, to a certain extent well as you say it's it's actually not in our area of expertise whilst we see costs put to us from you and builders all the time we're reviewing that cost against the project we're working on but it's anathematic it's incorrect for us to take that and apply that to a job certainly two three four years after things just shift mm. so much but just going back to that training i just in my head want to understand some of the things that would have been involved that allow you to say okay um what do i do to work out costs can you talk a little bit about that like in terms of measurements in terms of understanding rates what what was involved in that training yeah well i think it's like a lot of uni degrees where it more teaches you how to think and and the real training comes when you're when you're out in the real world um, but I guess there's no pure quantity surveying degrees anymore. They've all been phased out. So they're all construction degrees or construction management degrees, which is what I did through Newcastle University. Um, it's just teaching you how things go together and teaching you how to think about how things go together and what goes into um, a building and coming back to first principles and you know if you've got a concrete slab you've got to allow for the concrete supply of the place the reinforcement the fixing of the reinforcement the formwork the pumping um, and the labor to place it so um, it's just learning how to think about how things go together well, probably not too dissimilar to an architect how they learn how things go together yeah absolutely we, we did do some quantity surveying like subjects they were pretty cursory um, and like most things we're taught, it's, we're not taught so as to go out and become um, students with an architecture degree that end up being quantity surveyors. We're taught so that I can have proper conversations with people mm. like you and builders about costs. That's one of the yeah. things I love about what I do. I, I, I like that this is all design, but on one day I'm sitting with you talking about numbers and rates and lineal metres, and then an hour later I'm looking at you know, a detail profile with a joiner. I love that variation. But yeah. just circling back now to... Well, you um, need something after talking to a QS for a while because we're a pretty boring lot. So oh, that's we're unfair. Dry. That's unfair. <laughs> that's so unfair. Every conversation I have with Matthew usually goes longer than it should and we end up talking about a lot of things. We solve the world's problems. That's right. Know. That's right. Um, but just now going back to 
what you're providing when you're providing it. So for me, I'm always going to that concept design so that I've got the initial idea and that idea has been approved by the client. Now, usually clients have come to me with a sense of budget. Um, and even if they haven't, we sit down and think about it, maybe based on, you know, what could be considered uh the most they'd be willing to spend based on the purchase price of the property and the potential resale of the property. So in other words, you know, capital investment. Um, so as to avoid, if possible, overcapitalizing. So, and I think I even, based on lots of conversations I'm having with you and others, I might even put a case forward to bring you into the picture even earlier. Like, let's sit down and let's think about a vision. Let's think about an area and you come in and say X, Y, and Z. But that's what I normally do. And you're providing what we call a budget estimate. Now, this is an overwhelming document, uh, Matthew, in some respects. And I like that it's got a lot of content um, because you can really see all the things that go into the cost. But before we break that down, I'm interested in you because you've told this story so many times, just giving your general thoughts um, because so many clients come to us with um, a shock as to how much things cost in this country. Mm. Um, and, and New South Wales, where we're practicing. And what's your general thoughts on what's led to that? Just generally speaking, not the last two years, but generally yep. speaking. So about the last 10 years, I've been banging on about how we don't train tradesmen anymore. So we're all preconditioned as parents, really, to send our kids off to university. And trades have been looked upon as a second-class job. So um, all the kids went off to university and now we don't have any bricklayers left and we don't have any carpenters left and we don't have any chippies. So I think the other point is too, we make kids go to year 12 now. So traditionally, um, kids could leave in year 10, get an apprenticeship, then by the time they're 20, they're fully qualified tradesmen. So, and that really doesn't happen anymore. It's also getting younger kids interested in the trade, which I think is also difficult because a lot of them don't really want to be out doing hard work at the moment. But I think that balance is starting to shift because of the money that's on offer now um, for the trades. But it's sort of been 10 years of not training people is why we sort of ended up in this mess. So, you know, we've got um, plumbers or let's use bricklaying as an example so at the moment bricklayers are getting about two dollars thirty to lay a brick and that's not to supply the brick that's just for them to place the brick in the wall um, until we get to the point where we train you know ten thousand bricklayers and ten thousand plumbers etc there's just not that competitive tension in the market so pretty much um, trades can nominate what they want and if you don't pay, the next person will. So, um, yeah, there's no, no competitive tension in the market at all at the moment. And it's all through the lack of labour. And we're, we're different in Australia compared to somewhere like um, Europe that tends to have a lot of cheaper Eastern European labour that, that comes in and, and, and works relatively cheap, cheaply, where we just don't have that here. You know, on the projects I'm working on, a charge-out rate for a labourer so an unskilled labourer with no formal qualifications is $60 an hour. So um, that'd be more than probably what a lot of architects earn. So I get a lot of architects tell me I should have become a carpenter. So, um, you know, the charge out rates for carpenters on the jobs I work on it are starting to hit $90 an hour. 
and I think they'll be $100 an hour by the, by the end of the year. So, um, and, and the builders are finding it very difficult at the moment just to hold on to their guys as well because, because there is so much work, guys are being poached off each other. Um, at one builder, I'll offer them $5 an hour more to go over. So it's a very good time to be a tradesman and they can earn incredibly good money. So that, that's the number one thing is we just haven't had the tradesmen. Um, and then, you know, we've had what's happened in the last couple of years where, where prices for materials have just gone up exponentially as well. Just on the topic of the hourly rate, um, you know, compared to um, other professions and compared to, say, when you started, like in the 2000s or whatever, um, uh, how how has that hourly rate increased? Do you think is it doubled? Is it well? Well, to give to give you an idea, I remember pricing a high end house in Mossman Waterfront, and it came in at three thousand two hundred a square meter, and we couldn't believe it at three thousand two hundred dollars a square meter. What year was this? Sorry, what... this was in uh, would have been probably two thousand and. I would have been 98, 99, it would have been. Yeah. Um, and now that exact same job would be $15,000 a square metre. So it's sort of a five times um, growth. Wow. So back then, the carpenter rates would have been around the $40 an hour mark. So back then, there was more carpenters, there was more trades. It was people were leaving... Um, a little bit earlier at school to get earlier apprenticeships sorted. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And um, I guess our population was smaller back then as well. Like the, the demand now is a lot stronger than what it was during that time as well. I mean, that was late 90s wasn't a great time. Um, there wasn't a lot of work around as far as building went. So um, the economy was a bit tighter. So yeah, things were just tighter back then. I, I'm going to do another episode on construction um because i truly believe that um you know the, the good carpenters the good bricklayers whatever they're true artisans they're true craftsmen and i have mm. all respect like i completely agree with you i i wouldn't have worked for as long as you did in that industry but it's a requirement in architecture that you do a little bit of construction work mm. um we did work with timber with brickwork with concrete whatever and it's you know it's 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 a hard gig in itself to just carry these heavy elements, put them in place, make a true plumb level. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's a craft. But on top of that is the craft of being asked to do something specific to an architect and client's vision. And that's a task as well. Um, just out of interest, those, those rates um, and that cost per metre squared, that was an architect job. Would you say that there's any variation today necessarily in, I'm not sure if you deal with any non-architect jobs, um, but do you know if it's, it's any different? Like does the architect label add a margin to the overall cost? Look, if you're comparing to a project home, well, sure it does because a project home is a cookie cutter approach and you're buying something very standard off the shelf. And to give you an idea, a project home, um, is probably around that two, two and a half thousand dollars a square meter mark. So it, it's a different thing. Um, I guess where one-off designs 
are more difficult is because they're one-off and mm. you can't ring up the trust company and they just send you out house number two. You know, yeah. it's everything's individually designed and have to be thought about. So um, generally the, the people that work on individual house are a bit different to the ones that work in the project industry. Sure. All right. Well, I think that's an overall good overall snapshot. Um, I want to just now go through this 50-page document and certainly not page by page or line by line. Yeah. Um, but because I'm often asked the question, you know, what's the value for money? What am I actually getting here? What am I getting here when compared to what a builder would provide? Um, uh, the difference here is that there's the full summary that a builder would provide and then there's, let's all call it the story behind that summary, which is the line by line detailed breakdown. Mm-hmm. And engaging a quantity surveyor, we get both. Yeah, We get the benefit of being able to look at both and dissect both and see if any of these elements can be tweaked um, either by rethinking the design vision and changing the vision with the approval of client, with the direction of client. Um, or, it, you know, finding alternatives. So just to go through a normal one that, that you provide, um, all these um, items, just for the benefit of some people that might not appreciate what they are, and maybe just a snapshot as to things that influence the cost for them. Let's just go, do you have one handy in front of you or you know them all yep. off by heart? Yeah, I'm pretty, no, I know them off by heart now after 25 <laughs> years. So I've got one here that's, I don't know, maybe 15 items. But the first one is site prep. What do we yeah. mean when we say site prep, site so, preparation? So maybe if I just differentiate first the difference between what a builder provides as yep. a quote and what I provide as a elemental estimate, which is a cost plan. Um, so when you get a quote from a builder, it's done in trade-based format. So you'll see concrete, bricks, carpentry, you know, where when, when I'm doing a cost plan, it's more of an elemental estimate. So we're breaking the building up into square metres. So it's square metres of floors and walls and roof um, and ceilings and internal walls. And the reason why we do it that way is because when I'm involved early on in the project, we don't have the detail to measure it as a bill of quantities. And also it's a quicker form of estimating. So it's cheaper for the client. So it doesn't provide you the exact cost, but it provides you pretty close on what the end cost will be without having to go into the detail because to produce a bill of quantities is probably nearly double the time it takes to do an elemental estimate. So you're sort of compromising the information you're getting with the fee that we charge to do that. And at this stage, as I say, typically if it's pre-DA, the information's just not there and it's not worth doing a bill of quantities anyway. So that's what we call an elemental estimate. Um, So should we start with site prep? Yeah, we'll try and keep them quick, but we just thrown a few terms around there. Elemental cost versus bill of quantities. Bill of quantities, more detail, um, therefore more drawings, more specification. Yeah, yep. um, think builder's quote. Yeah, that's, yep. that's you know, yep. builder's quoting. Yeah. Yep. And if we don't have the right information, it's unfair, unreasonable, and it just wouldn't happen that a builder could provide a version of a lump sum. They'd have to provide lots of qualifications and yeah. exclusions. Yeah, Certainly, that's where builders' prices become inaccurate because if the information is not there, 
the builder just won't put it in yep. or they may put in a price that's nowhere near what the end result might be. So he might put in $15,000 for a kitchen and once it's been designed, it's 50. So yep. um, yeah, it's a, it's about knowing what, what might go in um, to the estimate. Yeah. All right, cool. So site prep. So site prep covers all the demolition, the excavation, the termite treatment um, of the house. And uh, just, just trying to envisage this, because it's a million dollar question, to demo Alternad's new build. Yep. Uh, Very common question. Should I <laughs> knock it down and start again? Yeah. Um, or should I try and keep as, as much stuff as I can? So look, it's a, it's a project by project basis, this one. I see a lot of architects try and keep as much as they can to the point where they'll keep nibs of walls when we're demolishing everything else around it. And I'd say, just get rid of it. And a builder would prefer, and they'll always say to you, look, just start again. Um, if we're keeping most of the external walls, sure, that's great. We can keep the external walls and you're saving yourself some money. But if those external walls, if the brick tires are rusted out and we need to replace those, if the bricks need repointing, if all the windows are coming out, you start to question, is it worth it? Because the cost of making it good is probably similar to the cost of starting again, or the cost may only be 10 or 15% less, you know, to, to, to make it good rather than start again, but the result might be different to, to start again. Now, now, the big caveat I always put on whether to knock it down and start again is this. When you knock it down completely and start again, you've got a blank canvas. And that lets everyone's imaginations run wild. So that's the danger is you can design an architectural marvel where when you were trying to keep something, you're constricted on what you can do and hence that constricts the cost. So that's where you've got to be careful if you do start again is, is not to reinvent the wheel. Sure. It's a really good qualification. The other thing that's important as a little side story is that there might be some benefit in keeping the existing because it gives you license to do something that would otherwise not be approved by council that's right. today. Yeah, and, and, and that's a big one that, yeah, they're trying to maintain setbacks. So that's a big yep. reason to try and keep what's there. But you've got to be careful these days because you can't magically let a wall fall down on site that you mm. said was going to be remaining on site. It has to stand. So we, we go to extreme lengths now to keep walls standing that really should have been brought down mm. and, and probably to a cost detriment. Right. But I think the important qualification that I probably should have said earlier is nothing we're saying here is definitive advice for someone to go away and say, I no. know exactly how much to spend. I know exactly what to do. This is high level discussions to give insights so that you can engage Matthew, architects, me, designers, others to work through this on a site by site, project by project basis. There's no one stop shop rule. Everyone tomorrow demolish. Everyone no. tomorrow do alternates. But I certainly think that from my experience as an architect, this kind of idea that I don't like my existing home, um, let's level it. Well, I challenge that to say you don't like your existing home because there's parts of it that don't meet an overall vision. So what we, can we do to modify that without, you know, completely leveling the site? Um, but, yeah, it's a case-by-case -case scenario. All right, substructure. So substructure is anything that touches the ground. So yeah. it's pad footings, it's strip footings, it's the slab on the ground, 
where it might be a timber frame floor. So anything that touches the ground is in the substructure. Okay, so I'm standing on floor, floor level. Everything below my foot is substructure. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, interesting on that, because of some things we're seeing with supply of timber, um, I'm having some conversations with you and builders about how years prior, I remember we had this conversation with a, at another company, Matthew was tasked with the very difficult task of saying, okay, Matthew's given us a budget, it's over by double, let's halve it by making everything lightweight. So we had it as brick, we had it as concrete, let's just go lightweight and that's going to solve the problem because lighter means less um, uh, structural footings, uh, you can, the labour's cheaper and we've moved a little bit away from that in recent years. So what's the latest and greatest on that, Matthew, in terms of timber frame versus concrete? Yeah, so that has shifted a lot, especially in the last 18 months. So to give an example, stud timber, which is 90 by 45 framing timber, which is in, in most timber frame houses. So in January of 2021, it was $3.20 a lineal metre. And that same piece of timber now, some people are paying nearly $10 a lineal metre for it. So it's been a significant um, increase in cost. And we've got a thing called an LVL, which is a structural timber. And the same with those. Unfortunately, we don't manufacture those in Australia anymore. So there might be one small company in WA that does. So most of our LVLs now actually come from America or even more surprising, um, the pine veneers that make up those LVLs, a lot of them actually come from Russia at the moment. So, um, and because of the sea freight issues we've had recently, we can't get them here. So builders are waiting three and four months to get LVLs and hence the cost has skyrocketed. So it's brought masonry construction back more into line with timber frame construction. And again, this isn't, this isn't for every project, but a suspended Bondex slab, which is a slab poured on a metal formwork, I think is starting to rival the cost of a timber frame um, floor that's got steel running through it to give it. Even by um, the time you take that down to footing design, it still, still is competitive? It's still competitive. And one of the big things is, especially with bricks, is because we make them here still, yep. is a builder can ring up generally and get bricks delivered in a couple of weeks where you might wait two months to get timber delivered. So for the speed of the project as well and the cost that might save a client like renting or in builder's preliminaries, yep. um, making the job shorter, you've got to weigh all that up. Yeah. And That's it also good. depends on the building company you get involved. Like a smaller one man band type builder would prefer to do it all in timber because he's got a carpentry based team and that's where he makes his money. But for the builders who may do three or four or more jobs at a time, they don't really care what it's made from. Yeah. It's an interesting thing when I've gone to tender, like sometimes when we chat about uh, the exercise in value engineering, uh, reducing the cost by reviewing the design against the cost collaboratively with a builder, um, which is a little bit late to do it at the tender stage. It's, I, I believe in trying to get the builder in earlier now. But um, one builder will say, uh, if I did it all in bricks, I can reduce it by this amount. And then another builder will say, no, that's not going to save me money. So it's all about their relationships, their trades, their connections That's and the right. way they work. Yeah. 
So it's anything but a blanket response, but it's certainly something interesting to put on the table. Yeah, um, a lot of building companies have changed what they once were. Like you still get, as I say, your small one-man band guys who the builder is the owner of the company and he rocks yeah. up and puts the nail build on. But most companies now just subby everything out. So they're not too worried about what it's built from. Yeah. Um, but they are worried about timing. And so if, it's, if there's an indefinite amount of time to get something as critical as wall framing, right. then that's yep. a problem. Yep. In a way, we might have touched on the next one, which is structural steel, timber, metalwork. Um, but is that every bit that's of framing a, above? Yep. Well, that's all the structural steel, the engineer designs um, to make the house stand up and brace it. And the metalwork part is all the nice little architectural details, like it might be steel plate reveals or cappings, um, all the nice architectural bits. Okay. Um, interestingly, just on this, um, if we're sometimes thinking of a vision that uh, let's be bold and express structure, like express stud structure in a wall, express roof framing, you've... Um, You've actually challenged me on this and, and made me think, wow, like some people might think that they've, it's, if it's expressed, if it's revealed and it's not lined, you're saving cost. No, where it's the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when you want to expose an LVL, let's say a rafter in a, in a ceiling, that LVL arrives at site fairly rough. So the carpenters have got to spend time to, to dress that LVL yep. and then you've got to paint it. Um, yeah. Look, gyprock is very cheap. If you can hide something with gyprock, that's the cheapest way to do it. Sure. Um, and just on that, because we don't have structural design usually, I am trying to advocate to get more of that in um, earlier. How are you working this out? You mentioned on a previous project it was to do with tonnage or something. What's the... Yeah, so as QSs, we might have our... Look, we're not structural engineers, but we get asked to look at a project much earlier than when there's an engineer involved. So really it comes down to experience and um, jobs you've worked on of similar size or you might put your own beam sizes in and work in some, some tonnages. So that's one thing that's hard as, as a QS, and I always caveat in any cost plan that I do, that we're not structural engineers and all the um, structural elements are really provisional sums or, or estimates until they're documented by an engineer. Do you think there's a real benefit in getting that structural engineer in earlier so that you don't have to make those assumptions? Does it, um, does it make things tighter? Not necessarily, because look, I'm a big advocate for getting the QS in straight in after sketch design. And I yep. think that's that's when we should be in there because at sketch design, the, the, the dream hasn't been completely sold to the client yep. yet and everything is still very malleable. And you, you, if I price it at that point, you're going forward knowing you can afford it. Yeah. So with the cost of getting a DA now, and the horrendous amount of consultants that are involved just to get a DA, I think it's really important to know that you can afford to build the DA you're going for. I think that's a really good point that we maybe should have mentioned a bit earlier, that some people might say that you're continually giving people, what do we call it, Matthew? You're the dream the dream record. I'm known as an, I've been labelled by an architect, who may be listening to this, as the Ministry of Misery. <laughs> <laughs> which is or the, which, or the dream slayer, which is unfair because what we're actually working out is where we're at, yeah. and better to know that now. I'd, like, whilst it's not great news always, it's news 
It's information and we can pivot from there to say, do we make it smaller? Do we find extra money? Do we compromise on finish? What can we do? Yeah. And And look, I I hate killing projects, you know, like you know how it feels, Michael. I've killed plenty of your projects over the years. And we're we're not out here, we're not here to, to deliberately do that. But normally, uh, up until that sketch design stage, it's all been quite fun and exciting. And I, I guess we bring it right back to reality and put a dollar figure on it. So, but we're here to help at the end of the day. So I know when I do my cost plans, I sort of break it up. I like to give what I call above the line and below the line costs. So above the line, we give the client a cost for the base project as close as we can get it to the client's budget. And then we have the below the line items, which is like a shopping list of all the nice to have things, which might be optional. And at that point, that might be a whole room. It might be a whole first floor. It could be just getting a better tap or an upgrade to a tile. But um, it it basically gives a client a shopping list to add to that base build cost, what what they can and can't afford. Um, So it's with a heavy heart that we often... Um, send back a, a price to an architect and the way things are at the moment is I pretty much go to work every day and I'm going to disappoint one person you know because costs are so far out of control at the moment so um, we are a tool we're not um, we're not the devil we're here to no. help. and it's a design exercise we're designing we're planning the cost you know, yeah. we're working out what the cost is going to be and then we're pivoting from that if it's not palatable. Um, so it's really important information. But let's keep going. We've got roof and that's fairly obvious. But just yeah. tell me, um, let's just compare, um, like, because one thing I didn't appreciate is that, like, you might think the most basic roof is a, is a custom or metal roof when compared to, like, copper or zinc yeah. or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but again, we've got to work through context. We've got to work through lifespan. Um, yeah. And the thing I didn't appreciate is that a very low pitching uh, clip lock roof is actually not much cheaper or cheaper at all than a five degree pitching custom all roof. No, no. And just to take a step back to when, when we say roof in an elemental estimate, it's not just the roof sheet or the roof tile. When we say roof, um, and this is the way element, elemental estimating works is it's the cost to form the complete roof. So that includes the structure behind it. So it's the yep. rafters um, and the sarking and the insulation as well. It's just not the roofing material. So that's separate from the structure that's helping to support the roof. You're talking about just the general roof framing to support. That's the, right. Yeah, yeah, it's all included in the roof cost. Yeah, cool. Now, just on those two points, I forgot to maybe mention this idea that um, one of the things that can help us there, just generally speaking, is when we've got a problem, we look at how to make the problem smaller and how to make the problem smaller is to build less. You know, if I've got a smaller room with smaller spans and smaller roof sheeting and all that, then that's going to help me, yeah, a lot more necessarily than just saying, let's change the roof from copper to custom orb. Yeah, so... Yeah, look, there's two ways to save money in building, and, and it's really quite simple. One is to change the finishes. So, and I generally say, look, we can pull about 10% um, out of the project budget by changing the finishes. 
Um, and, and when I mean changing them, it means downgrading them from what we've allowed for. But the thing with that is, is they're the things you've got to look at every day. So yeah. when you've just spent a million dollars renovating your house and you walk in and you hate your kitchen, you really ask yourself, was that really worth it? So you've got to be careful with how much you do pull out of the finishes. The best way to pull money out of a project is to build small, as small as you can. And the, where building costs are at the moment, the days of building large houses are absolutely gone because we just cannot afford it anymore. So we, we, we have to build as small as we can. We have to minimise the amount of bathrooms we put in a house because quite commonly that's a $50,000 uh, $50, exercise per bathroom. Um, limit the wet areas and, you know, it's it seems to be a bit of a trend these days to put in a back of house kitchen. And again, so a lot of houses have two kitchens now and that's probably adding another eighty dollars to $100,000 to the cost of the build. So, but building small is the best way to pull money out of a project. We've got to look at the square metres. Yeah, right. I'll come back to that later as to that critical point between economy of scale versus um, versus it, 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 um, it being you're paying a premium for not getting a lot because it's a, it's a good point. But let's just wrap up structure. We've got walls, windows and internal walls. And I think maybe just to summarise this, um, what we're talking about with this overall portion when we say structure and correct me if I'm wrong here, Matthew, is we're talking about the building shell independent of services, almost like if I was a landlord, I was providing a shell with no fit out. Is that a correct That's summary? Right. It's, it's, it's to lock up stage. What people always refer to as lock up stage, the windows are in, the roof's on, the walls are up, but there's no services inside. That's the, what we call the structure. Yeah, so when we say external walls, you told me this the other day, you're talking about the lining of the external walls, the framing of the external walls, whatever insulation might be required, and the internal lining. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, internal walls as they sound, as it sounds, uh, and then I've got external windows and external doors. Um, just on the external windows and external doors, um, Again, I think everyone should note that you might say there's a lot of glass, there's a lot of openings. Openings mean structural span. Uh, openings mean big panels of doors that you're delivering to site for cost. And I think it would be remiss, and please shut me down here, Matthew, to say, oh, let's just make the windows really small, the outlook really small, the openings really small to save on cost. Um, Whilst there might be an argument there, that's at the expense of these things that really sell a vision, sell a dream, inside-outside relationships, connection to the outside, potential views, direct solar access, which we've got so much of in Australia. So I think you've got to really balance that out. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a, a square metre of window generally is more expensive than a square metre of wall, depending wow. on what it's clad in. So. Um, the less windows, the, the, the cheaper the bill will be. But yeah, you, you're compromising on livability. And that's, that's where you've got to take advice from the architect on where you should spend the money. Yeah, because we've got to think here, what we're, not, what we're doing here is this exercise in engaging Matthew is working through the best value for money. We're not engaging Matthew to say, give me the cheapest design or an architect to give me a cheapest design. We're trying to find a design that best matches their vision. Because um, I'd tell you to build a square. Yeah, that's right. If, if a QS could design everything to be a square, the most efficient shape. Absolutely. 
And that's not what we're here for. And that's why no. I, I want to say that it's not about disappointment or doom and gloom necessarily. It's about saying, here's the vision, here's the idea, here's where it's costing at the moment. What can we do? And 50 pages of line items really helps there. All right. So that gives us the structure. And interestingly, I've had some experience, Matthew, where clients have got um, funding for structure. And um, I'm going to get some property valuation people out here that provide advice to banks for bank loans and things. But uh, I've said in previous episodes that our language of communication that you're familiar with, I'm familiar with, um, but not necessarily everyone familiar with is a plan, a section, an elevation. But that's code. And sometimes it's really hard to appreciate the feel of that space from that code alone. And I've actually had situations where clients have got funding based on the understanding of a design from plans, from documentation. And then when that structure's gone up and is there and they come and look and they say, actually, we think the value is is much more. Um, And it's an interesting pivot point. So now we're moving down to finishes. Um, And- This is the bit everyone loves, the touchy really bits. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Would you say that as a rule, uh, I'm looking at one here where the finishes are actually cheaper as an overall cost than the structure. Is there a rule there? Is there a relationship there where one's usually more, one's usually less? Yeah, look, generally when I'm estimating a job, if I have measured the structure and I double the cost from there, it gets pretty close to what the end result is. So the, the finishes and the services are generally 50% of the job and the structure is generally 50% of the job. Yeah, right. Okay, so yeah, this is really important. Some people might say, I don't look at my shell every day, I, you know, the benefit for my neighbours. We don't care benefit. what's in the walls. Yeah, we don't care what's in from. That's right. As long as it gives me a volume. Um, I touch my door handles. Uh, I touch, certainly touch my kitchen. I work at my kitchen every day for better or worse. And if I'm not really compelled by it, then that's a problem. So let's just go line by line. Uh, doors, we're talking internal doors, yeah? That's right, yep. Yeah, and we so try and- we, we Door hardwares, the garage doors, the architraves, everything yep. that goes into hanging that door. And where possible, remembering that it's, project to project we kind of keep those doors to a minimum height like a standard height yeah like 2100 or 2440 yeah. millimeters is always the cheapest door but people generally aren't always want that hollow core is cheaper than solid core um, or you can go anything up to a custom door that's full height yeah and again advice from architect advice from builder is really important here like i've i, I always specify specify solid core doors um, and if we really wanted to drill down, we could say, what's the impact of doing the more hollow core? I've got in my house now two hollow core doors that have fallen apart. <laughs> yeah. And you can hear everything through the door. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. when the wind grabs them, they, they really go. But there's a critical yeah. door in our house that's fallen off. It's, off it's like it's delaminated from the hollow core. But yeah. Anyway. Look, there's some things when you're, when you're considering costs that are just good value for money and you just wouldn't compromise on. And the overall effect it has on the cost of the job is negligible. So um, I I'm generally don't suggest sort of that, those sort of things that have low impact on the overall budget but give a massive impact to livability. Yeah, and I think that's another key point as to why you engage someone like Matthew in addition to your architect to really work through that and have that um, opportunity to talk through things from a lifespan versus initial expenditure because it's really important. Floor finishes is a classic one. Um, 
what we're talking about is what's going on top of the structure. So even though in um, site, yeah, sorry, substructure, we spoke about um, that's everything below the floor finish. That's right. So that's your concrete slab or your timber framed floor and the floor finishes is what you look at and what you walk around on. So let's go to spectrums here just to appreciate things. Would you say the lower end of the spectrum is like an applied vinyl or something along those lines? Is that? No, sort of... I'd probably say carpet. Okay. Is, is, and obviously carpet does vary a lot in cost, but yeah. carpet is probably the cheapest form of, um, of floor finish. Although we do a lot of um, like a burnished finish slabs now where the, the concrete are continually trows the slab and gets a, a burnished finish. Um, that is a, a very economical way um, to get a floor finish, but the builders hate it because they're building on top of a finished slab from day one. Mm. So generally builders don't like to do it. Um, you can imagine if the builder's out knocking up the frames and they drop their hammer mm. and they put a little dent in the slab, well, that's there forever. Which happens every day, right? Yep, happens every day. So yep. a lot of money goes into protecting that floor. And how do you... Um... How, how do you nuance that from a cost perspective? Because that's going to vary from builder to builder. I've got some builders outright that say, no, I, I don't Refuse want to do, to do it. it. Yeah. 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 Look, it, it's, it's a hard one, um, but I do generally load up the, the cost for protection if, if we are doing an exposed slab finish that's not a topping that goes over the top. Um, and builders will say to you, look, I'll, all right, I'll do it, but I can't guarantee you what the yeah. finish is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And so again, work with your team to see how that fits yep. with your situation. Um, but right. just go to the upper end of the spectrum. What are we talking? We're talking stone or? Yeah, look at stone tiles, you know, probably supply 150, lay 120. So, you know, we're at 270 plus we need to seal it. So we're probably looking at $300 a square metre. So um, a lot of the timber floating floors at the moment, you know, the good quality ones are probably 150 a square metre up. It's probably another $80 to lay it. Um, you know, you may need regular pole if it's on a suspended floor so you don't hear the walking around on the level above. So, um, so there's a few things we threw out there probably too quickly, Matthew. Floating floor. Uh, an engineered board. So that's where they put a veneer of hardwood timber on top of plywood. Which is where timber flooring's really gone in the last 10, 12 years compared with solid timber because we can yeah. get, you can well, lay it. Sorry. Yeah, we've just, well, we've just run out of timber now. So it's really <laughs> difficult to get hardwood timber, um, particularly with the shortage of timber that's been around over the last year. So basically solid timber floors now are gone. They're just too expensive. Which is a hang up from the bushfires. Is that what's driven that? Yeah, well, I've had it explained to me that the whole lack of timber supply was due to the bushfires that knocked out a lot of our plantations. But similarly, there's been fires in South America and the US through their plantations. So there's a worldwide shortage of timber at the moment, hence why it's so expensive. Right. Yeah, I've got uh, one supplier I'm working with that said he doesn't have black butt, which is, you know, the most... It's a very Basic popular timber. Yeah, That's very right. popular timber that I've specified for many, many years, um, yep. project to project. And yeah, yeah and saying, the quality of that timber is falling as well. Yeah, if but you there's, can get it. 
but there's plenty of other finishes we can look at that can work with a given situation. So it's just, this That's is right. just a knowledge base as of the time that we're recording this and six to eight months time, the situation could, could be different, but That's right. it's interesting to note that historically you're saying, I think, and I'm putting words in your mouth here that timber floor is sitting at kind of the halfway mark between the cheaper and the most expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you could say that. Yep. Um, and again, it's about, you know, client vision. Some clients don't like carpet because of allergies. Yep. So again, it's a case-by-case scenario. Ceiling finishes is, is as it sounds. And interestingly, as we've said before, the idea to say, you know, I'm going to save money by not having a ceiling is actually um, the wrong way of thinking things. But generally speaking, I'd say for most of your projects, you're looking at plasterboard, rock, yeah, ceilings. That's, yep. yeah. Yep. rock's a marvellous thing. It's so cheap for what it does. Yeah. Cool. Um, but interesting on the ceiling finish thing is to carefully consider, and maybe again here, Matthew, you can correct me, the um, the way it meets the wall. That's right. Yeah, the junction. So whether it's a square set or whether it's the shadow line, um, it will affect the cost, square set being the cheapest. But are they, again, going back to your point about is, is it incremental? Is it enough to get excited? Um, for a quantity survey, it probably is, but not right. for a client. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's look, there might be $10 a lineal meter difference. So it depends on you know how many you've got. If you've only got 100 lineal meters through the job, it's $1,000 and you probably wouldn't worry about it. You go for what, what you want. Sure, but work through that with your team. Um, yeah. We're coming to the, to the towards the end of these because one, two are, are fairly linked, but joinery is a big one. So a lot of people, when we say joinery, uh, might not be sure what we're talking about. What, what do we mean when we say joinery? So joinery is the kitchen, it's the laundry cupboards, it's the wardrobes, it's the vanities, you know, it might be TV cabinet, um, any um, purpose-made joinery, uh, furniture for the, for the project that the builder provides. That's, that's built in furniture, it's built, built in. in cabinetry. Yeah. And this is always, it's, it can generally be, about four percent of the job joinery and then it goes up i have jobs where it's ten percent of the overall price so it is always a big number and it's always the number that everyone goes to first in cost savings to slash and burn so you know and it's an easy one to knock back so i might put fifty thousand dollars in there for the kitchen and we put a red pen through that and say we're only going to spend 40 and 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 that's fine but if the allowances aren't realistic, you know, in six months' time, when you go and speak to the joiner for that kitchen and you can't get anything you like for 40000 it's pointless putting that sort of budget in. So when you do cost savings, you've you got to still try and keep it realistic. Like we're trying to get to a number at the end, but we want that number still to be realistic and, and still for you to be happy with what you're going to end up with. And again, you know, working through the design team how often are you going to maybe see your roof versus how often are you going to look at your that's kitchen right. bench top yeah like, and that's what i come back with those savings you know if you compromise too hard on the finishes you, you do really regret it yeah absolutely uh just to go spectrums here the the lower spectrum is um you know a, a basic laminate kitchen versus yep. like a timber veneer would that yep. be a fair assessment? That's one end to the other, yeah. And we're starting to see like a melamine, all the, the inside of the cupboards, the carcasses are made out of melamine. Sometimes people want to go to plywood, which is more expensive. 
um, with a polyurethane kitchen probably in between the laminate and the timber veneer. And um, open shelves versus drawers, like if this, this this is always a big one. Drawers are expensive, so the more drawers there are, the more expensive the kitchen will be. And open shelves are similarly expensive because yeah, it right. means there, there's no. And, and this is always a shock to everyone, but when there's no door in the front hiding the carcass, it means the carcass needs to be finished. Yeah. So if you've got a timber veneer kitchen, it means all the insides of the cupboard need to be timber veneer also if there's no cupboard on the front. So there is no cost advantage not to put the door on. Right. So best approach if you're trying to be mean on things is door fronts, door fronts That's instead right. of drawers. Yeah. That's okay. right. Great. But really that has to be taken seriously. And I, I completely agree with you. The thing that you don't see at that outset is the easiest thing to say, let's compromise on that. And then you your heart breaks by the time you do finally document it. So really take that seriously. Um, appliances and sanitary fittings, that's everything that we go and buy from uh, a retailer, toilets, that's right. cooktops, yep. ovens, whatever. Yep. And there's one of the great things about that, Matthew, correct me here if I'm wrong, is that if a client thinks there's an opportunity to save a bit of money and it's not lose change, by the way, they could look at buying those things themselves and save the builder's margin. That's right. And just, just to kick off, that's a big advantage of doing one of these cost plans early is you've got budgets on every single item that goes mm. into your house, like your kitchen appliances, every tap, all the tiles. So when you as a client go out to a retailer and you take the appliance trade with you and you'll see I've put in there say $4,000 for an oven and the oven you like is $6,000 well you know the overall price has gone up by two yep. so you can use the estimate as a shopping list when you're yep. specifying all these finishes um sorry what was the second part to your question I just forgot oh just the benefit of um going and buying it yourself so you got the shopping list yeah your shopping list as presented has the builder's markup because the builder buys it the builder's taking the risk of that you know That's from right. a cash flow perspective but if you buy it you could save 10 15 percent yeah and that's a big one at the moment and look if people want to do it i'm happy to do it the problem with doing it right now is because of the shortage of supply on most items if you delay the builder by not getting him the oven when the joiner needs it to, to, to build the kitchen, you're going to be up for prolongation costs. Yeah. So if you're as a client going to take on that responsibility and normally that gets passed on to the architect and the <laughs> architect is responsible for doing it, you cannot delay the builder in any form. And, you know, tapware can be three or four. It even got to six months. So people were having to order taps as the project started. So yeah. it means, A, there's no chance to change your mind. And if you were supplying that to the builder and you couldn't get it to him when the plumber wanted to fit it off, well, you're going to be paying prolongation costs to the builder. So that's the risk in, in assuming that responsibility. The other one is if something goes wrong. So if your oven, well, let's say your tap starts to leak, you ring the builder and say, come and fix it if it's in the warranty period. If you supplied that tap, well, you've got to organise your own plumber to go out there and fix it. Yeah. The point here covered, is you've got to it's make not it covered by the builder's insurance. Sorry, yeah, Michael. That's all right. Sorry. The point here is that you make that informed choice. 
you get the 15% saving, but that 15% comes with the fact that the builder's taking care of those, those problems. Um, and, right. it's, and it's not to say, Matthew, too, that it's, that it's impossible that this is no. the world's no, most. No, it happens all the time. Yeah, but you just got to take it with consideration. Yeah, and one big thing is if the builder doesn't get paid a margin on it, his insurance does not cover it. Yep. So if they went missing on site, it's your problem. Yeah, yeah. All right, just to finish off finishes. Wow, there's a bad pun. We've got painting, and painting is as it as it sounds. As it have, sounds you, yep. have you noticed um, that's a trade where things have, have gone up like some of the others you've mentioned, or is that fairly stable? Yeah, look, and painting, well, painting varies quite dramatically but between the quality of tradesmen that you can get. Um, like a project home could simply be a spray coat, yep. which the paint needs to be watered down to spray it on. Um, right up to the high end where you get, you know, gloss finished painting. So it depends on the quality of the paint job really as to the cost of the paint. Right. But like all trades, like all the hourly rates have gone up. It's, yep. it's, painting's not excluded from that. Sure. But, yeah, painting's fairly obvious. And that gives us um, a bottom line for finishes. And as, as we said, it's really nice to have this bottom line for structure, bottom line for finishes. Um, the, the rest are services before we get to one that does um, confuse a lot of people in preliminaries. It's, it's, a funny, it's a funny expression, funny term, and I want to spend some time on that. But services, we're talking plumbing, electrical, mechanical. Yep, aircon, um, lifts, um, yeah, ventilation, light fittings, ceiling fans, floor heating, whatever it might be. Um, and plumbing is everything that, you know, how to yep. drain the building, sewage connection. Yeah. So, um, again, in the absence of detailed information, what science do you put behind working those out? So, again, it's from experience of, of really working on a similar job somewhere else. Because um, normally at this early stage, we don't have an electrical drawing. Yep. So, you're just drawing on your experience from past projects. But one thing you reminded me of, just thinking of this knockdown rebuild component, um, if you've got a working plumbing system and you've got a working uh, switchboard, mains board, you're knocking down, you're having to replace those items and that's that's a fairly expensive component to replace. Sure yeah. yeah, yeah. the plumbing and electrical are two very expensive trades. Yeah. All right. We, we might not uh, look at those in a, a lot of detail necessarily, but... We'll get to yeah. the preliminaries. Let's get to prelims because this does do a okay. lot of people's heads in because it's such a big Including figure. Including architects. <laughs> it's, everyone hates preliminaries. So <laughs> prelims, let's consider prelims, preliminaries margin, builder's margin and GST. Now, quite often, they're the three biggest trades in a project. And when the builder leaves site, there's nothing left behind for those three trades. One being a tax. One's being his margin and the other one is preliminaries. So preliminaries covers things like all the insurances, um, the scaffold, the site sheds, um, surveyors to set things out, the cleaning of the site and the cleaning of the house once it's done. Um, it might be protection, higher equipment, tools that the builder might needs to buy and the supervision, which is the big one. And this will vary from builder to builder. So if you've got, going back to that small one-man band type guy, he might not charge any of his time for supervision because he's working on the tools and earning money that way, plus getting a margin. Where if you have a builder that runs three or more projects at a time, he 
he'll employ someone to look after your project. And quite often he's the most important person on a job and he gets charged out to the job. So if he works part of his time with a, with a nail belt on, on the tools, we might say, you know, 20% of his time is put to supervision in which we'll allocate 20% of his time where he's not productive on site into the preliminaries. On larger projects, he might be 100% of the time organising trades. So 100% of his wage goes into the preliminaries. So prelims varies. Typically on a smaller builder, they're around 9 or 10%. And for a larger builder on a, on a large job, they can be 18%. Every builder will price it differently. So when you get tenders back, the prelims will always vary from builder to builder. And it is difficult um, one for me to price. I try and take a middle of the road approach, but it will, will vary. But yeah, um, between that 10 and 18% is where it can land. So it's a big percentage of the overall project. And as I say, when the builder walks away, there's nothing left of that on site. Yeah, and sometimes the builder will say that they've actually gone into the red on the That's preliminaries right. because yep. um, just to take a step back though, I like to think of preliminary, it's preliminary, it's before, it's everything that needs to happen to unlock those other trades. That's um, right. And as you say, with that is protecting the site, managing the site, putting the hoarding around the site, ensuring the site. And it's, yep. this, it's this strange trade where we lump, it's, we can almost call it other. You know. bits and pieces that's right we yeah. don't know where else to put them yeah yeah and, and preliminaries is time dependent as well yeah. so yeah. you know you've allocated 52 weeks to the job if another builder allocates 48 weeks to the job his preliminaries will probably be cheaper yeah so going back to your point about smaller if you've got, I, I, I like doing this with my my son when he's got less to clean up he's happier and if his happiness or the tension that comes from him having to clean, we could measure in, in terms of money, in terms of mon monetary value. Yep. Um, it's a good analogy. If the builder's building less, then the builder's on site less time, generally speaking. Yep. I'm not saying it's binary. Like if you build a huge airport hangar that's got prefabricated trusses that you can just roll out, even though it's massive, there's not a lot of bespoke detailing that has to be crafted. So it's not... I'm probably oversimplifying here, but generally speaking, you're building less, you're on site less time, there's less labour, there's less preliminaries. Yeah. That's right. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, a bit hard to manage that binary terms, right, to say a 100 metre squared building will take a builder a, a year versus 50 metres squared will take them six months. It's not as binary no, as that. No, it's, yeah. it's, it's not size dependent. It, it, like the detailing of the project can add a lot of time. So it depends on, you know, what it's made from and how it's, how it's put together. So you can imagine you can build a, a 500 square metre project home in, you know, six months where you could do 150 square metre architectural reno and it takes seven or eight months. Yeah. So it's not related to size so much. But this is where builders start to take the risk. So they're punting that they can finish it in a certain amount of time. And that's what they've found recently is they can't finish them in the time they've allocated. So it's cost builders a lot of money. So this is where builders have gone into the red. Yeah. On, on top of all the, the spiralling material costs. And as a consequence, the builders now make this a bit of an open book scenario. You know, this is what I'm allowing. And yep. each week we'll see how we're going. And yep. I think it's important to note that 
Historically, people have thought that open book, let's call it what we call cost plus, do and charge, this is how much it costs, plus a, a, a margin. I think some people have been concerned about that and certainly not something I recommend per se, but because it's transparent, open book, collaborative, and we're working through it as a team, you've got the opportunity, just like you giving people this trade breakup early in the piece to say, okay, well, this is where it's going. I don't like where it's going. Let's look at changing something or adapting mm. to suit. Yeah. So, Look, the whole cost plus lump sum is we could talk an hour about yeah. that. Um, I, I'm a big advocate at the moment for cost plus when it's set up the right way. Now, there's a, you'll hear a lot of people say, I did my job cost plus and it ended up double the budget. And sure, yeah. it, it, it does happen. It's all about setting it up the right way. And there are ways you can set it up that will mean the job runs completely smoothly, but you're not going to pay an absolute premium for having a lump sum. Mm. And if you want a lump sum price at the moment, you are going to get slugged. Yeah. So really, you, in some instances, you don't have much choice other than to do a cost plus. And we could do another podcast yeah. another time talking <laughs> for an hour about how to set that up. Absolutely. But just in a nutshell, if the builder's taking on uh, a lump sum, then they're taking on the risk of getting it wrong. That's and right. at the so, moment, that's huge for them. That's, that's huge. Risk. Yeah. So they're pricing that risk in. Yeah. So where they might do it 15% cost plus, they might put 25% margin on it lump sum, yeah. plus adding contingent or contingencies all through the trades to cover themselves. Because even um, we don't know where the prices are going to go. Certainly, if I was um, pricing a job mid last year, I would, would never have thought that timber would have got to the prices it is now. So, and that's where all the builders you hear that are getting in trouble now is no one thought it could get this, this expensive and it has, and they've all committed to jobs, so they have to pay it. So you have a lot of builders at the moment forking out their own money to build people's houses. Yeah, yeah. But and again, think, that's a whole other podcast. Absolutely. But I think I just want to say that people um, need to think in the context of the situation at the time. At, right now, the previous idea that, cost plus was a dirty word and super problematic. It's not necessarily, if you set it up properly and you work with your builder well, and you realize that it's actually a collaboration to help manage the overall project risk, because it's actually to no one's benefit for a builder to go bust. That's not no. to the benefit of the project. No, so, it's certainly not to the benefit of the client either. Um, unless you're listening in Queensland, we're not allowed to do cost plus projects. Um, yeah, it's, if you, if the builder goes bust on your project, it's it's an absolute, it's a nightmare. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Look, we've got to the end of that list. We've got um, builder's margin. Um, interestingly, I had a builder say that if your margin is 15%, and we call it margin, 5% um, of that, I'm, I'm not saying this is detailed at all, Matthew, but 5% yep. might be contingency that they've got something wrong. 5% is their actual overheads of operating as a business and 5% yep. is pure profit. Is that the yep. kind of way we should think of those things? That's roughly right. And that 5% of pure profit that the builder's left with at the end of the day, he's got to pay tax on that money. And then he's got to warranty your building for the next seven years. Yeah. Yeah. So builders don't make as much money as what people think for the yeah. risk that's involved. If you get a builder at 10%, he's not making any money. Mm. Depending and on the size of the project, that is. Obviously, it varies 
you know, once you get into jobs that are $10, $12 million, it's obviously different. But, you know, jobs up to, say, $5 million, a 10% margin, in my view, is very skinny. Right. And you need to be conscious of that when talking. Like someone might look at this, Matthew, and say, oh, Matthew, 15% builder's margin, let's make that five. One, you would come back and say, no, we can't do that. You're not going to find yeah. a builder. No. But two, any builder that would put their hand up for that, that's going to come out in the wash. That's right. And especially at the moment, um, they only have to have one thing go wrong on the job and they've lost. They're not making any money. Yeah. So you, you got to question to yourself well, what quality of build I'm going to get yep. from then on. All right, cool. Well, that, that's a detailed, well, a, a high-level review of what is the thing that Matthew usually provides, and I like to get that as soon as possible. I completely agree with Matthew getting it at the sketch and concept stage, and I do implore everyone out there to, um, to encourage their architects or their designers, whoever they're working with, to try and do this as soon as possible. I will put down details, Matthew, as to where people can find you. Um, but Can I just, just mention one thing? Sorry, but yeah, before yeah. We, you mentioned it earlier about why don't I just get a builder to do it? Yeah. And, and I get hit with this all the time. So why you don't get a builder to do it is, is when you get someone like me, we specialise in looking at drawings very early on and have a good understanding about what the end result will be. And especially for me, if I've been working with an architect for once I've done two or three projects for them, I get a pretty good understanding about what that architect's details are and what their expectation is at the end of the job. So I can build that estimate into the estimate fairly early. Also for a lot of builders, especially the smaller ones, they've just done a 10 hour day at work mm. and they've got home at five o'clock. Mm. The kids are screaming. <laughs> You know, they need to be bathed and, and, and fed and, and put into bed. And then he sits down at probably 8 o'clock to start doing some estimating. And that's the last thing that the builder wants to do. So he's just going to put a whole lot of numbers together and send you an email saying, I can do it for this. Mm. Never, ever believe a cost that comes back like that. Never, ever believe a cost that has a series of very round numbers in it. That means they <laughs> haven't spent that much time on it. So it, more often builders are coming to QSs to do the work because the, the builders themselves know that that's not their specialty either. And a lot of people don't understand when I say, look, builders aren't good at pricing work. And they sort of think, well, what do you mean they're not good at pricing work? Um, but they don't spend the time on it. And especially mm. early on. And especially if you get a builder in early, there's a, there's a lot of cop-out clauses that come out later when the building cost goes up. So the builder will say, oh, but I thought you were supplying the appliances. He will say, oh, geez, I didn't know the structural engineer was going to do that. Mm. So when we do a cost plan, I generally go through the job entirely with the architect, spend an hour talking about what sort of tiles do you think they're going to use? You know, what are we going to build the walls from? I, I put down a detailed list and that sets a base mark or a benchmark for the, for the estimate for when things are changed later on, whereas a builder will just throw some numbers on it there are builders out there that are good at doing it but from them you want a detailed costing you don't want an email mm. or a one pager that comes back and says i can do it for this and that's the big advantage about using a qs um, we spend the time to do it and sure you do pay for that where a builder might do do it for you for nothing 
but at the end of the day, you've got no recourse on that builder. Mm. We, where we've got a, we get paid to do a professional service, so we're, we're liable for that. Um, and I, I, I totally hear you. It's a really good point. I'm glad you circled back to it. Like if I am a professional dealing with a huge concrete slab pour tomorrow and getting all the right people in place for that pour, and that happens to be the same night that I'm also after that Paul going to meet the next day, someone to talk about a budget estimate. Well, where's my greatest risk? And what am I going to, you know, put more energy into? And I completely understand where certainly I'd think I'd put the energy. And, yeah. that's, and that's why. See, quite, quite, quite commonly too, I'll do an estimate. And it's quite easy at the moment just not to believe it because costs are, you know, as expensive as, as they are. And the client will flick it to a builder mate um, and he'll have a look at it and he'll say, oh, no, I can do it a lot cheaper than that. And in the client's mind, they think, well, the builder's going to be the one that's building it. So I'm going to trust that advice. And the, and the job plows on and they get their DA and get it documented. Then it goes out to tender and it's back at the price that, you know, the QS had set. And where does that leave you then? So, you know, you've got to, you've paid all this money to get a job documented and you've got to go back and redocument it and you've wasted all that time. Mm. So you've really got to get the right advice early on and trust that advice. Mm. And I say, you know, if I come back with an estimate and a builder comes in 5% at a stretch, 10% cheaper, I would say, look, that might be possible, but you get, you know, builders that might say they're 30 or 40 or 50% cheaper and it's just not possible. Mm. So you've got to be really careful on what advice you take on board. And just on that note, Matthew, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, Matthew's worked with me on projects in the double figures now, 10, 12, I'm not really quite sure. But would you say that one of the smallest you've looked at um, is that that single balcony project with me or have you looked at projects smaller than that? Oh, look, I'll do things as simple as, 30 40 grand so yeah. i've done very small things okay um, right up to next level size houses well so. i've done houses up to 80 million so yeah. It, yeah. it does span a very big um, broad range and the important thing to note that some people might think oh if he works on houses for 80 million he's going to look on a house that's got a 50,000 budget the same way but no that's no. the benefit of you looking yeah, at both and that's realms. yeah that's the experience of knowing what, what you're looking at and the different types of builders and tradesmen that work on these work on these jobs i mean generally even at the smaller end they're still architectural projects so they can be quite intricate yeah. Um, I generally don't do the project home end of the market. They're, they're still architecturally designed. But yeah, you need to need to step into the shoes and know which what sort of builder is going to be building these things. But that gets me to the, one of the final points I wanted to note. If there is an authority, in my opinion, on um, current costs for single dwelling for houses, you know, it truly is is you, Matthew. Um, not just because of the scale to which your work varies, but because you work with multiple architects and different builders that do work on these residential projects, these bespoke homes. And I've said this to you before in meetings with clients, like I just, I'm not sure if that you'd be happy about talking about this, but you just pull out the latest houses magazine and you look <laughs> at the, you look at the team and it says QS plus is the quantity surveyed to almost, I don't know, most of the listed projects in in those magazines so if yeah really is an authority we really appreciate the continued yeah. work you do um, oh, i really enjoy the architecture that that's what, why i do it um it, it's 
there's not a lot of job satisfaction in being a QS, but being, be, being involved in, you know, great architecture is a great thing. And that's what I really enjoy about it. And people can and engage. And that's why you would use an architect because I think the smallest things are the hardest to design and the hardest to live in. So sure, you know, we work on some really big houses, which are great, but I think the challenge for an architect is the really small things. And that's where you get the most value um, that's what an architect brings is creating spaces that are livable, which means you don't need a 300 square metre house. Mm. You can get away with a 200 square metre house. So that saves you money by creating those livable spaces, not just adding another room here or there because you want another room. Yeah. That's a really good point to end on there, Matthew. Appreciate the mini plug for the architectural no profession. <laughs> but is there anything else you want to say in closing? Um, I think employer project team um, that's got the relative experience to your project and more importantly, listen to your project team. Building is a bit of an industry where everyone's an expert or an armchair expert because we've all watched the block. Yeah. Um, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but things don't get built in three days. And, and when they do, they're built pretty shoddily. It just, it just doesn't happen. So listen to the, the people that have been doing it for a long time and take on that advice. As hard as that advice might be to take, please listen to it because it'll save you a lot of heartache at the end of the day. Great. Thank you. All right. Well, really appreciate your time here, Matthew. I know how busy you always are. Um, uh, a lot of the time when I call Matthew, I'll be lucky if I get him on the first call. I <laughs> always call back though, don't I, Michael? He does, he does. Always call back. <laughs> always call back. But if um, Matthew, where if people can find you, there's the QS Plus website. Yeah, um, look, it's a fairly basic website. It's just qsplus.com.au, Q for but, Queen, S for Sam, P-L-U-S. But the contacts on there are current, yeah? There's an they info are. email. Yep. 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 Um, and the other thing is uh, Matthew's often talking at um, various architectural things on uh, through remote. Uh, just recently, Matthew, you were interviewed for ABC. There was a publication. Right. Yes. So he's certainly out there, and this is not the first or last time you'll hear from Matthew outside of potentially working with him. I recommend... You do get Matthew involved. If not Matthew, then there's other quantity surveyors out there. There, but, are. there um, definitely are. The value for money, I, I almost can't speak to. It, it's just, yeah, it'll reveal itself towards the end of the project. And in my experience, Matthew, almost all of your estimates are very close to what the builders end up providing when I've gone great to, to tender. Thank you. Um, thank you again for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. We'll see you next time. Have a great no day, Matthew. You too. Bye. There. Okay, that's a wrap. That is our first interview at What Is and What Could Be. Talking to Matthew Saunderson from QS Plus. You could tell from the episode that we had a lot more to discuss, and I dare say that Matthew will appear again at some point on the show. If you thought this show had some insights that might be useful to someone you know, a consultant, a colleague, a client, a relative, please do share it or subscribe to the show. Until next time, you've been listening to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, Architect. <laughs>